first to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. As we turn to God's word once again, I remind you this is the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. Isaiah 63, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of flowing colors, uh, rather glowing colors from Basra? This is the one, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his might. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them with my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16 is our text. We'll begin reading at verse 7. Last sentence of chapter uh, of, of verse 6 here is the fourth hallelujah. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please, as we turn to our hymn of preparation Number 101 in the Trinity Hymnal. Most holy and most wise, almighty and sovereign God, we humble ourselves once again before your throne and before your mighty word. We ask that you would hear our prayer even the prayer that we have offered to you and the hymn we've sung together, that you would come, Almighty King, that you would come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word and through its hearing, 
that you'd make yourself known, that your sovereign majesty would be evident as we see it recorded here in your revelation to John. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, make yourself known to us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The 45th Psalm is a song celebrating the marriage of a great king. And that psalm, uh, the bridegroom is one of the kings of Israel. And unlike other weddings, the weddings that we have attended, not the bride, but the king is the center of attention. The psalmist pays tribute to the bridegroom king, and he rehearses the various aspects of the king's reign, which compels him to extol his many excellencies. And of particular interest to us today, his ability, his prowess as a mighty warrior. Revelation 19 follows the pattern of Psalm 45, verses 7 to 10, is a celebration of the Lamb of God and his bride in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 11 to 16 is a vision of a mighty warrior. We're coming to the end of Revelation 19, remember that chapters 17 through 19 is, uh, comprises the sixth of seven cycles of visions to John. It forms part of the judgment theme of the book that runs th- from chapter 5 to chapter 19, like the seven seals of chapters 5 and 6, like the seven trumpets of chapters 8 through 11, the seven bowls of wrath, and chapter 16. Chapters 17 through 19 describe the judgment of Jerusalem. In this section, running from verse 11 through 21, this last section of this larger judgment portion of Revelation. The last half divides naturally into three parts as John tells us what he sees, as he so characteristically does. In verse 11, he sees heaven opened and a magnificent king mounted on a white horse. In verse 17, he sees an angel standing in the sun, inviting birds to devour soldiers slain in battle. And in verse 19, he sees the beast, his kings, and their armies gathered together for battle against the king and his army. We have in the first part of this last section in verses 11 through 16, a magnificent description 
of the warrior king. We'll look at this first part of this section under two headings, the warrior king's identity and the warrior king's triumphant judgment. His identity, his triumphant judgment. First then, we want to see who this king is. We want to understand his identity. As at earlier points in Revelation, a new set of visions begins as John sees heaven opened. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, John is called to enter the open door in heaven to view the enthroned one, the sovereign ruler of heaven's throne. When God's sanctuary in heaven was open, chapter 11, verse 19, it was the prelude to visions revealing the cosmic conflict in which the heavenly woman and her child are engaged with the dragon and his beasts, chapters 12 and 13. When the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony was opened in chapter 15 and verse 5, a loud divine voice spoke, instructing the seven angels who had the seven plagues to go and pour out upon the land the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And now, in chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, John sees heaven opened and a victorious champion sitting on a white horse. Now, there aren't many aspects of the book of Revelation where there's virtually universal agreement among all interpreters. But this is one of them. It's widely agreed, thankfully, that the rider on the white horse is Christ himself. That's evident from the names that he bears and other descriptors here in verses 11 to 16. First, he's called faithful and true. Verse 11, Jesus had spoken earlier in the letter to the church at Laodicea as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Second, he has a name written on him that no one else knows except himself. That's a self-knowledge that can only be attributed to God himself. Third, verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. John explains in chapter 1 and verse 1 of his gospel, this title means that Christ bears the very nature of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is eternal, John uh, clearly shows us in his gospel. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's divine. All things came into being by him. He's the creator. Fourth, Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Fifth, the description of his eyes as a flame of fire. Verse 12 of our text, and the sword coming from his mouth. Verse 15, matches John's first vision of Christ, the Son of Man, the first and the last, the living one. Revelation 1, verses 14 and 16. There's no doubt who the writer on the white horse is. The magnificent king, the warrior king described in these verses is Jesus Christ. That's where the, the agreement among interpreters ends. We see secondly here the warrior king's triumphant judgment. In this vision, Christ comes in righteousness to judge and to wage war. It's commonly and wrongly assumed that this is a description of Christ's second coming at the end of the world. The heading of uh, the Bible that I'm reading from has the coming of Christ. Now, surely this was a coming of Christ, but it wasn't the second coming of Christ at the end of the world. There are good reasons to believe that this, in this vision to John, uh, where is continuing to describe Christ's fierce judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. One is that the judgment here falls on the beast and the false prophet in verse 20. The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performs signs, uh, the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the beast. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The beast uh, is the sea beast of chapter 13. We said that corporately we identified that sea beast as uh, corporately as Rome and uh, individually as the emperor uh, Nero and the false prophet is also symbolized as the land beast of chapter 13. That's apostate Israel. The judgment of the beast and the false prophet is expressed with terms used in its prediction in various parts of the Old Testament. Perhaps the most familiar is Psalm 2 and verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a prediction of Messiah's coming. Uh, you remember Isaiah, in Isaiah 11.4, the prophet speaks of the righteous reign of Messiah, the branch with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. That's the language that we find in uh, verses 11 to 16 here. Uh, the, the rod of iron in verse 15. 
In writing this account of the vision, as uh, so often is the case, John appropriates these Old Testament images by the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration. In uh, Isaiah 11, the rod of judgment comes from Christ's mouth, but in Revelation, he rules with a rod of iron. The sword comes from his mouth. Chapter 19 and verse 15. And that's a second reason for taking this passage as Christ's coming in judgment on Jerusalem in the first century. The conflict here in Revelation is being driven by the sword that proceeds out of Christ's mouth. The sword that's coming out of the warrior king's mouth. He's fighting with his word. When the chief priests and scribes and elders came out to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, he said he didn't come to lead a civil rebellion. Mark 14, verse 47. He said that, in other words, his was a spiritual conflict. Christ is waging war with the gospel. The vision to John here in Revelation 19, depicts the progress of the gospel throughout the world, the universal proclamation of the message of salvation that follows Christ's first advent. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see what's being depicted here in the Revelation to John. John also borrows heavily from the passage in Isaiah from which we read this morning, which describes the Lord who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah goes on in chapter 63 to say that the Lord's garments are red like one who treads in the winepress. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Verses 2 and 3. Isaiah says, verse 4, that this was because the day of vengeance was in my heart. The Lord says, this is because the day of vengeance was in my heart. In Luke's account, of the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, verse 22. He described what was going to happen in, uh, Jesus described what was going to happen in the city as uh, the days of vengeance, fulfilling all things. For these are the days of vengeance, the vengeance that all things might be fulfilled, uh, Jesus said. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 63 and verse 6, I trod down all the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I, I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. Here in our text, in verses 13 and 15, it's Christ who has blood on his garments. Christ the King is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. 
And as in Isaiah, that blood is clearly the blood of his enemies. And yet there's a sense in which the bloody robe of verse 15 is stained by the blood of Christ's own sacrifice of himself. For here alone in Revelation, John calls Christ the Word, as in chapter 1, verses 1 and 14 of his gospel, speaking of his preexistence and divine nature and of his becoming flesh and tabernacling among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. In Christ, the words robe dipped in blood we have symbolized not only his incarnation, but his sacrificial atonement, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven's throne. This isn't only an account of the outpouring of wrath upon apostate Israel. It's the account of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, We see here the advent of the Son of Man. The heavens are opened, and he descends to earth to do battle with his enemies. Stained with blood, Christ, the warrior king, is already victorious, symbolized by the many diadems that he wears. Now, in Isaiah 63, from which much of this description of this warrior king is borrowed, it's emphasized that the Lord single-handedly accomplishes this victory. I have trodden through the wine press alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. John makes this a point emphatically, too, in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that... With it, he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. It's even more emphatic in uh, the original language, which uh, combines singular pronouns with the third person singular verbs. He himself strikes down the uh, nations. He himself 
will rule. He himself treads the winepress. The apostle stresses that the victory here, as being expressed in uh, this messianic king's rule, is Christ's alone. It's his work alone. It's based on what he has accomplished himself. The work of salvation is performed solely by the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessings and the judgments that accompany the salvation of the elect are set in place by Jesus and Jesus alone. And yet in verse 14 of our text, Christ isn't alone in his triumphant judgment. He's followed by the armies of heaven. We've seen these armies before. Even as we've seen the heavens opened before, we've seen these armies before. In chapter 14 and verse 1, the, land, the Lamb rather standing on Mount Zion and with him his fair army of 144,000. And again in 1714, when he conquers the beast and the false prophet, he's called uh, uh, the chosen, uh, the, the called uh, and the chosen of the faithful are with him in battle. Some have taken these armies following Christ here in our text to be glorified saints in heavens, and some take them to be both glorified saints in heaven and the angels in heaven, forming the heavenly hosts. But it must be remembered that from the perspective of the New Testament, the church is in heaven. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 6. So the armies are composed of Christians, whether glorified in heaven or remaining on earth and possibly angels, riding on white horses with their king in his campaign through the nations of the earth, bringing the word of God to the world. And because they are the armies of uh, Christ's bride, they're clothed in fine white linen, expressing the holiness of God's people through the righteous work of their warrior king, Jesus Christ. And so while Christ is shown to be clearly, uh, even in the emphatic wording of verse 15, the executive judge, the executive of God's judgment, there's a sense, our text teaches us, that believers will participate in this judgment. He has made us kings and priests. Revelation 1, verse 6 and 5, verse 10 says, And we shall reign on earth. The rod that comes out of the Lord's mouth is a rod of iron, and it's wielded by the Lord himself in our passage, but elsewhere in Revelation. Christ promises that believers who overcome will participate in wielding that same rod 
Jesus says so in the letter, uh, letters to the churches, chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. Paul understood this. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This is a wondrous but mysterious thing. It's something that if given only a little bit of thought boggles the mind. What a high privilege God's people are given to reign triumphantly with their warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't comprehend this fully any more than we can comprehend God himself or heaven above and all of its glories and all of God's glories. But nevertheless, through this vision, the Spirit of Christ would have you to recognize and appreciate your privileges as saints of the Most High God given to you through the work of this warrior king, Jesus Christ. As the word of God, this triumphant warrior serves as your prophet in revealing to you by his word and spirit the will of God for your salvation. Had he not done that, you could not be saved. Had Christ not been pleased to come to you, Through his spirit, as your prophet, you could not be saved from your sins. This triumphant warrior whose robe is dipped in blood is your priest, the one who once offered himself up as the definitive definitive sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile you to God. The one who makes continual intercession for you. Again, Apart from the warrior king's role as the great high priest, you could not be reconciled to God. His sacrifice, because his robe is dipped in blood. The privilege of salvation and reconciliation to God is yours. And this triumphant warrior is your king. He rides forth to do battle in the earth. And his first battle objective is to subdue his elect enemies to himself. That's us, dear Christians, before our conversion. Enemies of God at enmity with God, enemies of the cross, until he subdued us to himself by the powerful work of his word. He further restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. You surely will have recognized these from the Westminster Shorter Catechism Questions 24, 25, and 26. 
Jesus, the great, the divine, the magnificent warrior king continues to ride forth today throughout the world to render justice according to his word in the fulfillment of such messianic prophecies as we find in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Christ didn't ride forth only in days of old. In uh, the days of Joshua, when he appeared to Joshua as the captain of, of the Lord hosts, the Lord of hosts, the great victory before uh, that confrontation at Jericho, the first, uh, the first battle of the conquest of the land. The land. Christ didn't ride forth only in Israel's time, going before them as the angel of the Lord, mighty in battle. Christ isn't merely coming to reign in the future as our great warrior king. He's reigning now. He's on the throne now. And that's the great hope of the church of Jesus Christ today. Is that our king reigns. He's already victorious. He's wearing his many diadems. He cannot be defeated. The victory is his. And because the victory is his, the victory is ours. Victory over sin. Victory over death. The victory of the church of Jesus Christ. Throughout all the nations. All of this has been secured by this great, this majestic warrior king who today rides forth on his white horse, conquering to conquer. Amen. Lord, we see these things in symbols and elsewhere in the scriptures. We see it made known that Christ our King reigns, that he's a mighty warrior, that he sits enthroned, and that he comes to do battle and bring judgment. We know these things intellectually. We can comprehend that much from the scriptures. But we confess that we often don't apprehend them. That we don't latch hold of them and bring them into our souls. And such that they resonate in our souls and give us the hope not only individually, as we 
war ourselves against sin and as Christ comes and subdues us to himself and subdues our sins. As uh, you, O Lord God, subdue our sins in conforming us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. But also corporately, as we look out on uh, a bleak day in the church of Jesus Christ, not only here in the United States, but throughout the world, where Christ is trodden down, where the one who has trod uh, the grapes of wrath is trodden him, down himself, whose name is in the dirt, whose name is blasphemed, who is mocked, even as he was in the day of his sacrifice, as he approached the cross, as he suffered humiliation, as he suffered the shame of the cross that he bore. Oh, Lord, help us both individually and corporately to lay hold of these things in our hearts, to understand these things and to take hope in these things. In this life that's filled with, many times with bleakness, again, oh God, we pray that you lift up our heads, that you would open up the heavens to us, enable us to see Christ riding forth on his white horse. We ask in Christ's name, amen.